When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. Hey, what's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back in 2018. Happy New Year to all the listeners and followers of Project Upland. We are happy to have you here for the first episode of the new year. I hope you're not frozen, as uh, there have been some brutally cold temperatures across large portions of the country. We are not immune to that here in Minnesota, of course, and I know we're not alone. Uh, that's definitely put a damper on some of the late season opportunities that we could have had around here. I know there's been some diehards out in the woods, and my hat's off to all of you that have been out there getting after it. But I haven't been doing any hunting per se lately. I've had the dog out in the woods, and we've got on some birds here locally. So that's always fun. But a possible light at the end of the tunnel. We may have some warmer temperatures this weekend, rumor has it, we might even break 20 degrees. So compared to what we've been going through the last couple of weeks, that might feel downright balmy. So if that does happen, I may uh, may hop the bridge and get over to Wisconsin and get on some late season rough grouse. So that's, uh, that's on my radar for sure. But uh, before we get to today's show, I just wanted to send out a big thank you from the crew at Project Upland to all of the backers and supporters of the Kickstarter campaign that ended on December 31st, and it ended as a huge success. The funding goal for the campaign was met, as well as uh, the first stretch goal. So there's a everybody that backed the project has a little bonus coming their way, so that was very cool to see. 
Uh, the project is, like I said, it's funded, it's in production. That schedule is moving forward, so you should be getting updates from Kickstarter if you back the campaign. If you did not get in on the initial campaign, no problem. You can, I believe the book is available for pre-order now. Uh, so if you go to projectupland.com or look up the Project Upland page on Facebook, you should be able to find that information to pre-order the book, A Bird Hunter's Anthology, Volume 1. I'm really excited to see the finished product. I think it's going to be great. And uh, now's your chance to go pre-order your copy so you can get a copy of that when it is eventually released. All right, let's do it. Today's episode, we have a guest who happens to be the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, or TRCP for short. His name is Whit Fosberg. As I said, he's the president and CEO of TRCP. He's been with them since 2010. And he leads an organization that is best known for their efforts in creating federal policy and funding solutions, uh, all with respect to public lands. Uh, Big bold letters on top of their website. Their mission is to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. So it's pretty self-explanatory when you see a statement like that. That's what they do. They do a lot of stuff, obviously, to work towards that goal, but ultimately that's what they're trying to do. So if you enjoy the outdoors, which is a downright given, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, you should probably be aware of, and if, if not supporting, at least aware of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. And Whit Fosberg is the guy at the head of that organization He's really knowledgeable. He's got a lot of experience in federal policy. Our conversation uh, takes us into a pretty pretty good, I think, section of of what TRCP does. We sort of cover a few different areas, uh, what they're working on right now, uh, how their work benefits us as, as upland hunters and people that support outdoor activities. So I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, Witt's a cool guy. He grew up in, in uh, New York, grew up hunting and hunting and fishing. So he gets it. He's, he's one of us for sure. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation with him. So I think with that said, we will transition into our interview today. And at this time, I'd like to welcome to the show, President and CEO of TRCP, Witt Fosberg. All right, Witt Fosberg, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you tonight, sir? Great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking, and uh, it is our pleasure to have you on the Project Upland podcast. Really appreciate you joining us. Uh, for, for our listeners, Whit Fosberg is the president and CEO of Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, or TRCP. Uh, we're happy to have you on to talk about uh, all things TRCP and uh, and some some developments that you guys you guys have going on and initiatives. And so we can get a better understanding of, of what you do. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to dive into a little bit about your background with. I did some reading and found out that you grew up in upstate New York and, and you're, you're, you've been into the outdoors from a, a very young age. So it's kind of, it's in your blood and it's, it's obviously involved in everything you do. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you wound up uh, in this career of, of conservation. Yeah, well, was, my dad worked for the Conservation Department in New York State, and we had a woodlot east of Albany right on the Massachusetts border. 
And we were about two miles back on a dirt road, and it was me and my brother. We had no neighbors and no friends, so basically we grew up just playing outside. Dad taught us to hunt at an early age, and he passed away when we were young, but we sort of then took it upon ourselves to, you know, sort of pursue the rough grouse, you know, occasional woodcock uh, without a competent dog, which was invariably a fool's errand. But we killed a few and uh, had a great time and basically learned to make our way around the woods. And by the time we, you know, grew up, you know, I came down to D.C. and worked on federal policy. And, you know, I was, you know, an international relations major in college, but got to the end of four years and still felt I knew more about you know, grouse, woodcock, and deer, and trout than I did about geopolitics. So I got a job, you know, working for, at that time, National Audubon Society, and then parlayed that into, uh, you know, what's now been a 30-plus year career in federal policy in Washington. Excellent, excellent. That's that's awesome. So so really, uh, the uh, up, upland hunting and, and hunting uh, in general was, uh, was with you right from the start, and uh, you grew up in in new york so yeah rough grouse hunting that's that's excellent that's kind of page page out of my book i grew up here and i live in duluth minnesota i don't think i told you that but i uh grew up grouse hunting and and uh that's kind of what i know and love but uh as we all know upland hunting expands across this great country and and takes many uh many shapes and forms uh yeah it does and that's one of the things i've been very fortunate about when i've been at trcp is sort of because we're an umbrella group of a bunch of different organizations. So we've got Pheasants Forever, Rough Grouse Society, Turkey Federation, you know, as well as Mule Deer Foundation and Whitetails Unlimited and, you know, CCA and Trout Unlimited and DU. So, you know, because, you know, we deal so much with all those organizations, I've spent some time with them. So I've got to go out and uh, spend a little time in places I didn't, you know, once upon a time know much about. I also was lucky, too, to do five years in the U.S. Senate working for a senator from South Dakota which took me out there. So that's where I first discovered, like, uh, CRP and, you know, pheasant hunting. And it's been great. When I was growing up in upstate New York, my dad, you know, sort of was a, you know, he was a conservation guy, but he, he understood it. So we did a lot of timber harvest on our property. We did a lot of management. And, you know, his main goal was, you know, grouse, woodcock, and deer. And, uh, you know, so my brother and I still have that same property. We have another spot in the Adirondacks. So that still remains kind of home base for us when we uh, – you know, get to go back and, you know, participate in some of those old traditions that have been going on in our family since really the 1800s. Awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, you mentioned something there. I I spent a couple of years working for a conservation organization as well. I worked for Rough, Rough Grouse Society for a little bit, and you mentioned uh, that you guys work with them. Um, but you mentioned something that I that I want to want to get at because, you know, before we dive into some other stuff, but so much so often we talk about, you know conservation, and we have we we have the individual groups, whether it's Rough Grouse Society, NWTF, Pheasants Forever, Trout Unlimited. But so much of what each of those individual groups does for one or two particular species, it you know it benefits so so many more species across the landscape, and and it's just it's important I think to to convey that message, whereas. You know, from the outside looking in, you can think that one group is only concerned with a particular species, but that's just not the case with conservation, is it? No, you know, and I spend, like, you give you an example, I spend a lot of time with the Fences for Our Guys, Howard Vincent, their CEOs on my board. And, you know, Howard spends more time talking about monarch butterflies probably than he does about, you know, pheasant. And that's because, you know, it's, you know, that habitat that the pheasant need also need that, 
you know, what's good for the buck, for bugs and then the brother birds and the butterflies and the bees and everything else. So we're thinking about pollinators. And people don't think about, you know, pheasants forever. They were just created to go out and, you know, grow more pheasants and shoot them. But really, you know, they're focusing a lot of their attention these days on developing, you know, pollinator strategies for private landowners. And that's good for everything. And we all hear about, you know, sort of the demise of the monarch and it's got listed in the Endangered Species Act. And I can tell you, you know, nobody is doing more than pheasants forever to restore monarch butterflies to the, you know, the place where they're pheasants. So, but you know, like you say, a lot of that gets overlooked. You know, I also add that, you know, you've mentioned sort of the proliferation of the various groups that, you know, go to bat for their species and the amazing work that those groups have done. I mean, when I was growing up in upstate New York, I mean, I literally never saw a wild turkey until I was in my thirties and I'm 55 today. Yeah. So, I mean, they just were not around and Turkey Federation has done an unbelievable job of getting those back. I mean, waterfowl populations are orders of magnitude better today than they were in 1936 when Ducks Unlimited was created. So, I mean, those groups that deserve a big pat on the back for what they've done. But part of the downside of that is they get so sort of focused on their own critters, they have their own successes, you know, restoring an individual wetland or stream or whatever it may be, that over time our community kind of lost sight on several policies and how that relates to what everybody was doing. So for wetlands conservation, you know, that's things like the North American Wetlands Conservation Plan and the money that goes along with that that funds all the watershed, the wetlands restoration. For pheasant, that's like the farm bill that is incredibly important. And, you know, every different species out there, whether they know it or not, depends in part on what happens with federal policy. But with all those groups looking at their little pet issues, you know, that attention was taken off the big national issues. So really that's why this group was created, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, to try to bring all those groups together, be they fish groups, you know, upland bird groups, big game groups, small game groups, whatever, together on behalf of hunters and anglers across this nation. Yeah, that's excellent. I think that's that's a good segue into uh into TRCP because I want to talk a little bit more about about some of the specific things that you guys do. But just in my in my kind of uh, pre-show research that I was doing, I I I'm familiar with TRCP and 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 I have uh, you know aware of some of the things that they've done. But again, I'm probably one of those guys that I'm so focused in on rough grouse society and, and pheasants forever that I, sometimes I don't pick my head up far enough to to see the entire landscape. But you know, I was looking at the TRCP website. I checked out the mission page, and right there, you know, at the top of the page is to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but it got my attention, and that's that's something that I think is is important for people to realize about about TRCP and what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, Nick, go all the way back to the 1800s and Theodore Roosevelt. It was a sportsman in this nation that created the modern conservation system. I mean, you know, Roosevelt sort of personifies it today. I mean, they ended the market hunting. They created the public lands network. They created the funding mechanisms to pay for conservation. They put in the early environmental laws. They've, you know, been, you know, frontline and, you know, doing all the habitat restoration to bring those species back. And, you know, a lot of people don't recognize that. And, you know, so what we've been trying to do is to really recreate the hunter and angler voice in federal policy. And listen, there are going to be times when we disagree on stuff and just park that at the door. But, you know, we need to have, we tend to be the sensible center. You know, we're not extremists on one side or the other. And we care about, you know, hunting, fishing, you know, making sure our kids have the same opportunities that we had. And, uh, you know, but often that voice gets drowned out by the sort of shrill extremes on both sides. 
And, uh, you know, our whole goal is to try to bring that voice back and uh, make sure that the opportunities that you and I have had growing up, you know, exist for our grandkids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's certainly uh, certainly something that's important to me, and and it's obviously important to you. And I think it's safe to say that if it's important to a couple guys like us, there's there's a lot of pe- other people out there thinking the same thing, and and that's really what what brings us together um, on a lot of these issues. You know, the the other thing is <clears throat> we used to talk about it a lot at Rough Grouse Society. You know, you, you have uh, a membership that supports a given organization, and you mentioned the voice, people having a voice, and the bigger the bigger you, the bigger those organizations are, the bigger the voice that they have when it comes to talking about things like federal policy. and And so you see a lot of people that there's there's conversations, and you know we we tap the the hunters and anglers a lot, but there are other groups of people out there that utilize the same resources that we do, but from a conservation and a giving back standpoint they're they're largely untapped do you guys have a have a handle on on some of those groups and and maybe where some of the pitfalls are where that's just they're not as connected to the resource as as say a hunter or an angler is well i mean I, honestly i believe that nobody's really as connected to the resources of the hunters and anglers because you have to have just such such an intimate you know connection with it to be successful i mean if you're on a trout stream you need to understand what bugs are hatching and what phase of the bugs the fish are feeding on. You know, if you're, you know, upland bird hunting, you know, it is easy, especially if you have a lousy dog, just to be walking by that grouse that's sitting tight. And uh, your deer hunting, I mean, you're listening, you got to pay attention to the wind direction, the sun direction, every little sound. I mean, there's no way that somebody who's just out there, a bird watcher, a day hiker, or whatever it is, has that intimate connection. But at the same time, we all agree on the same ultimate ends. We want unspoiled open places. We want a lot of fish and game. We want clean water. We want clean air. So, you know, too often I think our community has been guilty of saying, well, geez, they're not a hunter or an angler, so, you know, they really don't get it. I'm not going to pay any attention to them. They're just some damn environmentalist. Yeah, listen, I mean, yeah, we can disagree on certain things, but let's focus on stuff we agree on. You know, we work a lot with the Outdoor Industry Association. You know, that's, you know, REI and Patagonia and Bass Pro and Cabela's and, you know, all the folks that, you know, sell the stuff that we buy to go out and play. And, you know, not all of them care about hunting and fishing, but they do care about, you know, protecting, you know, the great outdoors and getting people out in it. You know, let's consider that win. Now, in terms of broadening the funding for what we do, I mean, that is a discussion that I think, you know, I've challenged my friends in the outdoor industry to accept. I mean, you know, think about, you know, every time you buy a bow, a gun, ammo, fishing rod, motorboat, fuel, you're paying into a fund that pays for conservation. Today, about 80% of the state agencies, and they're the primary ones that manage fish and wildlife in this country, 80% of their budgets are paid for by hunters and anglers. Yeah, we don't mind, you know, them doing stuff with monarch butterflies or songbirds or whatever it might be. But in this time of declining budgets and increasing costs and increasing competition, that's some other folks have got to step up. And, uh, you know, I go out to the SHOT Show every year. I walk the floor and you know, I know that the gun and ammo guys, you know, pay in, but every time you walk by a you know, tree stand company, somebody makes the sense, you know, somebody makes the camo, all the rest, they're not paying in. And, you know, I'd love to have, you know, sort of a broader consciousness, you know, in our community, but also in the broad, you know, backpack community, hiking boot community, bird feeding community. That would be nice if they, you know, raise their hand and actually tax themselves to help pay for the stuff, you know, that we've been paying for since the 1930s. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great point. It's certainly uh certainly everybody uh you know that's paying into the Pittman Robinson tax and you know mean you know hunters and hunters and anglers. That's certainly something we can we can all pat ourselves on the back for. But but you know at the end of the day we've we've still got to ask the question what more can we do? Um, another thing another thing I. I grabbed off your website a famous famous quote from Theodore Roosevelt. It was in 1912 that he said, "There can be no greater issue than that of conservation in this country." You know, he said that in 1912, and here it is, 2017, almost 2018, and I, I wish it wasn't still, uh, you know, such such a great issue. But but I guess I guess the fact that it is, and the fact that there's still people out there that are raising their hands and, and standing up for it and fighting for it, it is a good thing. But but it's it's a constant battle, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's never been easy. And, uh, you know, you think about what Roosevelt had to go through when he set up the basic public land system. I mean, he created 230 million acres during his presidency of protected lands. And he had to fight, you know, the timber barons, the oil barons, the mining companies, you know, maybe not as much oil at that time, but, you know, basically all the extractive industries, you know, that still want to get their hands on stuff and, uh, you know, so those battles have been going on ever since Theodore Roosevelt. They're going to go on well into the future. Uh, you know, we, I think the country is a lot better, you know, prepared to deal with them. We have better technology. We have better science. We know what, you know, there's a lot of places you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have robust oil and gas development and really good conservation. You can have, you know, solar array up there and protect for big game. You can have timber harvest. And managed for a multitude of species, early successional, late successional, whatever it might be. I mean, we've gotten a lot smarter over time, but, you know, our political will is no better today than it used to be. So I mean, it's always going to be a struggle. And as soon as our community decides that, you know, they're going to check out and not pay attention, I can tell you right now, we're going to lose. Um, because, you know, it's just the constant pressure is on there from the other side. And we need to apply it back. I mean, if we care about it, it's worth it. Yep, 100%. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's transition a little bit into um, we kind of touched on that. I want to talk about I want to talk about some of the stuff that you and TRCP are doing for uh, sage grouse. Uh, so I guess kind of sage grouse 101. You know what is what is the major threat to sage grouse, and then you know if you want to go into that, and then you know, what is TRC doing to combat that those threats yeah so the sage grouse is you know is you know a pretty iconic species in that sage ecosystem and uh it has been in a steady decline you know ever since people basically emerged in the west i mean scientists say there were somewhere in the range of you know 15 million plus sage grouse once upon a time we're down in that you know half million to two hundred thousand range today i mean it's not you know sort of in time to you know start doing captive breeding and, you know, sort of triage and, you know, all the rest, but it's a really serious, you know, trend line, and it's been known for a while that we had to do something about it. So about a decade ago, a bunch of, you know, everyone knew that a listing was going to be inevitable unless, you know, various parties, you know, really led by the states, came together and figured out a way to keep this bird off the Endangered Species Act that worked, you know, for everybody. So, you know, at that time, yeah, you had, you know, the, the state western states, you had the oil and gas industry, grazing community, sportsmen, environmentalists, all came together and went through this arduous process to figure out plans that would keep that bird from being listed. Now, the causes of the decline are multiple. 
But, you know, it comes down to sage grouse really do not like development around them. Their only real predators are from the air. And so anytime they see, and that's primarily golden eagles and other raptors, so anytime they see something high, and they stay away from it. So, and then, yeah, that may be, you know, a tree, but there aren't many trees out in sage grouse country. But more likely, it's an oil derrick. It's a transmission pipeline or a transmission corridor with telephone you know, lines or power lines. You know, it can be, you know, you know a wind a turbine. So anything that's high, they see it, they're going to move away from it. So over time, you've had this crotch of development, um, oil and gas, you know, wind, you know, transmission, you know, you name it has come in. Also, grazing can have impacts if you just, you know, graze an area too heavily and really just eliminate that, you know, the ground cover that the sage grass need. You can have problems when you dry up water holes. And uh, he goes, it's pretty darn dry country out there, but the sage grass will find areas that have, you know, little aquifers, and they'll go, and that'll be where they, you know, sort of resupply from a water standpoint. So you've had, you know, this sort of constant crotch of development coming in, and that has caused the, you know, sage grass declines. So what's happened is, you know, in the last few years, in 2015, all the parties finally came together and announced an agreement that would keep the bird off the list. And, you know, it was 11 different states that covered about 70 million acres of federal land, even more on, you know, private and state land. So overall, probably about 100 million acres. And, you know, everyone thinks, geez, that's an awful big thing to do just for the sage grouse, but it's not just for the sage grouse. And sage grouse are, again, an umbrella species for about 350 other species that occupy that habitat, including some pretty important iconic game species like pronghorn, mule deer, elk use it a good bit, you know, tons of songbird species, burrowing owls, you know, butterflies, I mean, you name it. So, you know, I think folks recognize that if they can get it right for sage grouse and really protect that habitat, they're going to head off a whole cascade of potential other endangered species listings. And you can do it in a way that works for each of the individual states. Yeah, sure, there are going to be some areas to oil and gas development where you have to lower the intensity of the grazing. But, you know, the agreement that was announced in 2015, basically it was announced with you know two Democratic governors, two Republican governors, and the Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell. You know, it was something that really worked for everybody, and based on that, Fish and Wildlife decided not to list it. So fast forward to today, and uh, you get the Trump administration coming in and Secretary Zinke, and there was, you know, a general feeling that anything that the Obama administration had done must be bad. So mm-hmm. it needs to be looked at or undone. And so one of the things they looked at was the sage grouse policy and uh, announced a review. And, you know, so we have been, what we've been doing at this point is, you know, super involved with that review, multiple meetings, making sure that our community weighs in. And listen, some changes are fine, and probably some changes are actually entirely appropriate. And for something that covers, you know, 70 million acres of public lands, you know, I'd do a review as well. And I think that, you know, in the next month or so, we're going to know whether they decide to really blow everything up or they just make some strategic changes and surgical fixes and really maintain the overall integrity of the agreement, which almost – you know, wants to happen. I mean, you have the extremes on both sides that weren't happy with the original agreement. The you know, extreme environmental community wanted to see the bird listing listed. You had some of the extractive industries did not want to see an agreement come together. You had people who didn't like the Endangered Species Act that were actively trying to cause a train wreck so they could undo the Endangered Species Act. But, you know, I'd say 90% of the people that are in the middle 
you know, saw this as a really good compromise that everybody wins from. And we hope that's going to be the true at the end of the day, but we won't really want to know for about the next month and a half or so. Gotcha. So criti- critical, critical timing, critical point for, for that, that initiative right now. So effectively, sage grouse conservation on the ground, is it, is it essentially, I mean, do they just need completely undisturbed areas? I mean, is that how, is that how you protect sage grouse in its, ha- in its habitat? No, you don't need protect you know, you know totally protected areas. I mean, these birds have grown up with you know cattle around them for you know, over a hundred years, and uh, you know so it's it's not that that's really the problem. There are certain core areas, you know, a lek is the sage grouse breeding area, and you want to sort of stay away from the leks because that's you know the most sensitive area. And you push them off of that, then they may have a harder time finding other areas. But uh, you know. I think there, there was even a sort of a, you know, cute little axiom out there that what's good for the bird is good for the herd, which means that basically you can have responsible grazing on this, and which is really why the grazing community came in and placed the whole agreement. And, uh, you know, so in the oil and gas guys, you know, what they really want is certainty. You just tell them an area they're not supposed to go into, and they're fine with staying out of that, and they can go directionally underneath it from, you know, miles away. So it's, you know, it's, it's again, it's one where, you know, science is really important. And implementation is important, and everybody being bought in is important, but it's not like we're going to be locking up huge areas. Yeah, there are going to be some really critical core areas that aren't going to get disturbed in any significant way. But, you know, this is about just making sure that we manage development, and the stuff that we're doing out there, we're doing it smarter. Excellent. Yeah, so... So it's a, a balanced, balanced and, and educated approach. And I think, you know, you raised some good points there. And I think, you know, we so often see that in, in conservation. And maybe I'm just, you know, maybe a little bit closer to it than, than others. But it, oftentimes the, the resistance that you have to something that is, you know, it's often beneficial for both parties, but one party may be resistant. And it's really because, you know, the, the, their science is—I don't want to say their science is wrong, but they're just not properly informed. I mean, so much of it is so much of it is an education thing, and on what can be possible. You know, if you if you plan ahead, do things the right way, so often we can reach a win-win situation for for multiple parties that are interested. And you know, I see we see that a lot with with timber harvesting here in the upper great lake states i mean that's a that's a prime example and and it's it's being described by you with the sage grouse as well i mean it's just so important to to educate people in the right way and 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 let them know that that a lot of times we can reach a win-win when it comes to conservation yeah i mean most of the time i mean there's certain times when you know i mean we've been involved with this fight to protect you know upper bristol bay from a big mine opposed to you put it there in alaska and it would be this thing called the Pebble Mine, and it would be one of the world's largest you know, gold and copper mines, and the headwaters of the two most productive you know, salmon rivers in the world. That is a, just a place where no mine is ever going to be, you know, a good idea. It's just the wrong place for any sort of industrial development because the consequences of something going wrong, and you need perpetual mediation on it, you know, are just too great. It's not worth the risk. But most of the time, with sage grouse, with grouse management, with gear management. You can find much more, you know, nuanced ways to both have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Farm Bill, Farm Bill 2018. Uh, what 
what is what is TRCP in developing in, in that sort of arena, and, and what do we as upland hunters and uh, out, outdoorsmen and women, what do we want to see with the 2018 Farm Bill? Sure. So you know, the Farm Bill is the nation's single largest conservation program in terms of money. It's about you know $6 billion in federal funds go into conservation in the Farm Bill. And uh, you think about, you know, the the United States is primarily about 70% privately owned. About half of that is in either agriculture or commercial timber production. So what we do on those lands makes a huge difference. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it's just a you know, constant, you know, battle because you know, depending on what's happening with commodity prices, you know, there's real incentive to, you know, to do great conservation or there's real incentive to plow up as much land as possible. And what we really saw four years ago was, you know, the highest, you know, farm prices we've seen in, you know, certainly, you know, recent times. And so you had a lot of money, you know, that, you know, basically a lot of land came out of conservation. So the Conservation Reserve Program, which if you're a pheasant hunter, is your bread and butter. You know, that had been at its height, about 36 million acres. And as you've probably talked about with your friends at Pheasants Forever in the last farm bill, that got knocked down to 24 million acres. Not because yeah. Congress didn't like it, but because, you know, with, you know, corn prices at $7 a bushel, you just could not compete. So you might as well save some money, lower that cap, move that money into other places. But today we're just in a very different situation. I mean, farm prices are down. There's a lot of interest for farmers to get back into the programs. And, uh, I mean, we, frankly, we need people to get back into the programs. We've had, you know, serious water quality issues as folks have gone from you know, conservation lands to, you know, row crops. You look at that, you know, the record size of the dead zone, the Gulf of Mexico, dead zones and some of the Great Lakes. I mean, that's all a direct result. I mean, not all, but a largely a direct result of what's coming off of farmlands. And, uh, you know, if the best way to abate that is to really invest in conservation in the farm bill, conservation reserve program, uh, the, you know, the, you know, Regional Conservation Partnership Program, which is sort of longer-term easements, you know, big watershed-scale projects. You know, the EQUIP pro- program, which funds, for example, a lot of, you know, water quality improvements we see. So, you know, every group has its own favorite pet projects. You know, Fences Forever loves CRP. Ducks Unlimited loves, you know, the easement programs. Trout Unlimited loves EQUIP. And uh, what we're trying to do is make sure that we're growing the pie and keeping all of our brethren from cannibalizing each other, trying to just get a bigger slice of a shrinking pie, um, because you know, the consequences are huge. And But this is a place where, again, I think that it's never been a partisan issue. We can get in there, and we can make a really good case from a hunting and fishing standpoint, but also from a water quality standpoint, that this is a critically important program for the nation. And it's also a huge program for hunters and anglers. There was a program that, you know, TRCP really championed in the 2008 Farm Bill. At that time, it was called Open Fields. Now it's called Voluntary Public Access Habitat Improvement Program. But it was the first of its kind program for the federal government to incentivize private landowners to open up their lands for public hunting and fishing. And it was a, you know, then 2014 Farm Bill, it was a $40 million program. And uh, just this past week, um, you know, Senator Dane, uh, from Montana and Senator Bennett from Colorado, a Republican and a Democrat, introduced a bill that would grow that program from a $40 million program to a $150 million program. And in the first farm bill, you know, with even less money than you know, $40 million, we added about 3 million acres of public access on private lands. 
And it's all done through, you know, willing, you know, participants. It's a block grant program to the states. You know, they apply for that, so they get a grant. Then they go out and, you know, negotiate individual contracts for landowners. And so there's not – anybody doesn't have to do it, but if they want to do it, it's a great way for a landowner to make a little bit of extra money and get shielded from liability if somebody goes on their land and, you know, trips and breaks their leg in, in case they get sued because then the state assumes all that liability. So we think if that program can get expanded in the farm bill up to $150 million, you know, we could be talking upwards of, you know, six to 10 million acres of private habitat or private land if open to public hunting and fishing. And I mean, you know, the pressures, you know, of, you know, urban sprawl that's every place and just, you know, traditional hunting grounds getting closed. And uh, we need programs like this where we're going to be competitive. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely agree. And, and that's, I want to just sort of hit on a little bit because it's it's such an important uh, you know piece of the puzzle when it comes to being in the outdoors and specifically upland hunting. I mean, access to access to good habitat and huntable land is it, it's it's critical. And and if somebody if somebody is you know let's say they live in a city and and they're they're curious about upland hunting, they want to get into it. If they if the resources aren't there if the access to the habitat doesn't exist that person's probably never going to hunt you know unless somebody somebody really goes out of the way to get them out there and we we've got a small enough team as it is and we need all the help we can get so anything anything like that that is going to increase the amount of available lands for somebody to access and hunt uh you know i'm personally i'm all for it absolutely and i imagine a lot of project up and listeners are as well so that's excellent the the farm uh, go ahead with yeah, no, I think uh, you're 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 exactly right. Now, this is something, and a lot of your listeners probably know it by different names because every state you know calls their walk-in program something different, and uh, so they may have never heard of you know a VPA HIP program from the Farm Bill or an Open Fields, but they've probably heard of you know the Block Grant program in Montana or you know, whatever it might be in any other state. And one of the really cool things about that program is it's really incentivized various states that never had these programs, these walk-in programs, to create them. So in the last farm, some of the big recipients of grants were Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, you know, states with really small amounts of public land. And now they have these programs that are actively going out there and encouraging landowners to open them up. And I think, I don't know what it's like in you know, Wisconsin or Minnesota and places you hunt, but around here, uh, you know, like I've got a buddy of mine who, you know, works with us at TRCP and an older guy. And when he was a kid, he was hunting quail in Falls Church, which is yeah, less than 10 miles outside D.C. I can tell you, there are no quail in Falls Church now. If you walk down the road with a shotgun, you're going to jail. So it's just getting harder and harder. And, you know, in other places, you know, landowners, you know, the traditional landowner that always used to allow folks to come on their property and hunt and fish, you know, now they've sold to some California Silicon Valley billionaire. You know, the first thing they do is they come in, they put in their, you know, posted signs, and they block the access. And we got to be, if we're going to be serious about maintaining hunter numbers and what they do for conservation, we got to be serious about encouraging access. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's a, it's an interesting topic because as, as society presses onward, I mean, the world is, the world is always changing, absolutely. And, and, and people that appreciate the outdoor sports, it sometimes it feels like we're, we're clinging to something that, that feels like it's slipping away, but that, that's, I don't want to set that stage because I don't believe that's necessarily the case and, or it certainly doesn't have to be. You know, we have, there's, there's millions and millions of acres of public, public land available, uh, that, that we can still enjoy these, these, you know, 
historic traditions and and but but it's important that we fight to keep them. You know, if we want it, we've got to fight for it, and and that's that's ultimately what you're getting at. And to see, uh, I'm sure everybody's got a story of 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 seeing access or access habitat or game disappearing, uh, you know, from an area that that they used to know and love. And that's it's it's all too common, but it's but it's just it hits home even more that 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 we've got to we've got to fight to keep what we have. Yeah, I know, and it's easy to get bummed out in this stuff, but, you know, as, you know, I, was, I did a, you know, podcast with Steve Rinella too long ago, and he sort of starts out by, okay, how are things? And I'm like, you know what, they're great. I mean, these are good old days in a lot of ways. I mean, we have unbelievably well-managed populations of game in this country. And we've got 640 million acres of public lands where we can go out and, you know, chase stuff. And, uh, you know, yeah, there are problems, and yeah, we got to stay vigilant, but it is, it's easy to lose sight of just how good we've got it compared to almost any other country on earth. And, you know, that's what we need to remember. I'm, I'm glad you, glad you mentioned that. I, I feel better already. And I think the, the people listening do too. Cause yeah, it's, that's, that's one thing for sure. You, we just, we can't take it for granted because man, what we have is so special and, and you grew up with it. I grew up with it. You know, I'm, I'm younger than you. I, I was fortunate enough to grow up with it and I'm, uh, I've got a, I've got my first, child on the way and and i am absolutely hoping that that he or she grows up with it as well so that's uh that's the most important part of it for sure um all right we were chatting before a little bit we talked about sage grouse we talked about farm bill sort of prairie birds pheasants let's uh let's touch on on what trcp is doing for early successional uh forest habitat because that's uh that's near and dear to my heart yeah, you know, so, you know, I, I grew up, I sort of got my teeth in conservation during the 80s and early 90s, and that was sort of the heart of the, you know, spotted owl controversy and, you know, old growth. And, and listen, you know, the pendulum has swung too far at that time. We were clear-cutting huge swaths of public land. They were, we were, you know, driving salmon toward extinction because of all the runoff that was coming off those hillsides. And, uh, you know, something needed to be done. And, uh, you know, but I would argue that, you know, the pendulum has swung way too far back the other way, where it is almost impossible in a lot of our public lands to you know, do a you know timber harvest to get the wood out. I mean, you can talk about a. I was talking with a guy from you know, you know potlatch, and they were talking about a sale they had in Montana, you know, a relatively small five thousand acre sale. That took them ten years, you know, to finally get approval before they go in there and do that stuff. Now, in the meantime, we have a situation where we have pine beetle infestation in the Rocky Mountains. We've got other pests moving in all over the place. And I think our forests need active management you know, more than they ever have before. And it's almost impossible to have that happen. So I think there's broad bipartisan agreement that we need to go in there and we need to do something about this. Not to send it all the way back to the good old days where we could clear-cut everything and we had all sorts of problems, but finding that happy median where you can preserve old growth habitat, you know, lake successional forests, but at the same time an area, especially an area that has been you know, really impacted by disease or climate or whatever it might be, you get in there and you do the management. Because if you don't, you're going to have what we have today, which is half the West blowing up in forest fires. And, uh, you know, we spend, Forest Service today spends 56% of its budget fighting forest fires. 20 years ago, it was 16%. And which literally means they don't have any money to go in and do active management they don't have any money to go in there and prevent the next forest fire. So we have this insane you know, cycle going on that just needs to change. Now, the reason we have it like this 
is because we treat fire differently in this country than any other natural disaster. So we have a tornado, an earthquake, a hurricane, a tsunami, whatever it is. Yeah, there's a special fund within FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, you know, that pays for those catastrophic disasters. Fire has to come from the agency's core budget. So we have a year like this one where we have you know, Montana, Oregon, other places literally just on fire. You know, that soaks all the money out of the agency to go in to fight those fires. And that's not impacting just you know, Oregon and Montana for us. Yeah, they're pulling money out of Wisconsin to go pay for it. They're pulling money out of New Hampshire to go pay for it, Georgia. Hmm. So it impacts everybody. So what we're trying to do is get the, the way we pay for fire changed. At the same time, couple that with forestry reform to make it a little bit easier to get in there and actually do active management. So ideally, we're going to have a situation where the agency actually has some money to do management and the authority to go in there and do responsible timber harvest. But then things we're talking about is like, you know, we see any sort of you know, sale today just gets litigated. So if you have a cooperative process and a small-scale sale, you know, you can be exempt you know, from some of the, you know, deeper requirements you typically have to jump through to do a sale. I mean, we're not talking earth-shattering stuff, but just common-sense things just to make it easier to get the wood out of the, you know, the forest. Now, that's primarily a, you know, Western issue. In the Farm Bill, there's also a forestry title, which provides incentives for things like stewardship contracting which the National Wild Turkey Federation and some of our other partners have used extensively, where they go to work with the Forest Service and do the sales and really you know, do habitat improvement, and the money that generated from that sale stays in the forest to do other active management and to do other improvements. So it's creative little things like that that we're trying to get pushed through uh, just to make it easier to you know, know what science tells us we need to do, which is to manage these forests better. Excellent. Yeah, that's... that's uh that's awesome to hear. I mean, that's it's it's what we need for sure. I, I, you raised some great points in there. You know, the the especially the forest fires out west. It's you know it, it can be easy to sort of watch that stuff from afar, but but when you when you think about how that's affecting the budget for you know the federal forests across across the country, I mean, it might might uh, open some people's eyes a little bit and 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 realize that hey, that's affecting that's affecting them and and the lands that they they hunt as well. So. That's a that's an interesting piece of that. So, all right. So we've talked a lot about what what TRCP is is doing uh, to support the sporting traditions of, of hunting and angling and and all of us as outdoorsmen and women. What uh, what can we do to help you out? With what can we do to help TRCP? And and if if people are wanting to get involved and, and do a little bit more, what what could we do? Well, I mean, Nick, you talked about it, and that is, you know, this, if we want these traditions to continue, we've got to be engaged. And, uh, you know, it's not enough to go out and, you know, participate in, a, you know, a little, you know, you know project here or there. You know, we need to pay attention to what's happening at the federal level, too. So if folks want to get engaged, you can just come to our website, which is trcp.org, and, uh, you know, sign in as a supporter. You don't have to pay a dime. You know, if you want to, you know, you're going to get regular updates of what's going on. We'll actually take action on various stuff. You know, if you want a nice little, you know, hat or, you know, knife or we're doing a great promotion right now with Sitka. The Sitka is going to match any new donation one-to-one. So if somebody hasn't ever done it before, come on in, make a donation. Sitka is going to match it. And, uh, you know, we're going to be there for the long haul. We're going to be doing this stuff. Uh, but we need as many folks as we can, not necessarily to write a check, but to engage, you know, talk to their politicians, you know, talk to their buddies at the local rod and gun club, 
and uh, make sure that we don't get complacent and we're staying engaged in this game. Excellent. Appreciate it. I really appreciate uh, really appreciate your time this evening, Wit. Thanks for joining us on the Product Upland podcast. I hope uh, hope our listeners learn something and uh, they're a little bit fired up to to check out TRSCP and get get more involved. I know I am. Um, so again, thank you uh, thank you for your time this evening. And uh, if there's anything Product Upland can do for you guys in the future, please don't hesitate to let us know. Nick, thank you very much. And uh, anytime you want me on, I'm happy to be here. Appreciate it, Wit. You have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Hey, everybody. Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you again for listening to this episode of the show and remind you that, as always, we are brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Krause Camp. As always, we appreciate your feedback. Please don't hesitate to contact us via projectupland.com or by emailing me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.